sides. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much <clears throat> once again for this privilege and this honor of gathering together as family. Thank you for allowing us to break bread together. The very bread of life, the Word of God. Father, thank you for showing us your grace, your mercy, your love in time, so that in the realm of these things we are able to spread the good news about your Son. Father, may we never become familiar with the grace that you set before us each and every day. Rather, shall we embrace it, live it, love it, share it with others so that we might have more brothers and sisters in Christ for all of eternity. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt, to give us good news. We do just ask for blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, why the apostles so encouraging? By grace they were prepared, part 36. Uh, sometimes when I'm contemplating the right scripture for a given point in a lesson, I come across a passage that just needs to be read. And it doesn't have any other place, so that's usually when I put it at the beginning of class, just to condition our souls. Uh, so case in point, go to Luke 6.27. Luke 6.27, we're going to get to a specific point in this passage a little later, but the whole passage is so magnanimous, it's just awesome. And uh, for whatever reason, uh, there's a certain specificity to it, as we'll see, but for whatever reason, this congregation needs to hear this passage. Um, Luke 6.27, <clears throat> Jesus speaking, of course, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. And whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you. And whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But what? Love your enemies. Ah, oh. Love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for He Himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Be merciful. Just dwell on that. Just be merciful, will you? Just as your Father is merciful, do not judge and you will not be judged, and do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Pardon and you will be pardoned. Give it and it will be given to you. They will pour it into your lap, a good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, for by your standard of measure it will be measured to you in return. What a tremendous passage of Scripture spoken by Jesus Christ Himself. And I know that most Christians have probably heard it before, uh, but I wonder how many have the humility and therefore the faith to abide in such things. Again, I wonder how many have the humility and therefore the God-given faith to abide in such things. It's just so much easier to talk without walking, isn't it? It's just so much easier to talk without walking. But that's not the point this evening. Rather than feeling condemned, oh, that's me, you know, I, 
I do a lot of this, but I don't do a lot of this. <laughs> Rather than feeling condemned, do yourself a favor and reread this passage tonight before bed and then pray on guidance from the Spirit in your own life. That's what he wants. Read this passage tonight before you go to bed. I know I'm asking a lot. I know it's going to take a whopping one minute. And don't do it when you're passing out with one eye open and the other one a slit. Read it with earnestness and then pray on it and see what the Spirit says in your own life. All I can say that it's impossible to receive these lessons as of late in the absence of humility and a genuine willingness to leave the self-life behind. All I can say is it's impossible to receive these lessons in the absence of humility and a genuine willingness to leave the self-life behind. With that said, let's jump right into our working framework this evening. We've already looked at understanding humility. Uh, faith is highlighted because that's where we left on Sunday morning. So, so far we've covered lack of understanding and lack of humility, at least uh, as far as this slide is concerned. Uh, and on Sunday we touched upon faith. And as the Spirit alluded to on Sunday, the order of topics has not been by mistake. We went from understanding to humility to faith. And that makes a lot of sense. We know that while the apostles had enough of these things to be saved, for example, they understood the gospel call, but not the myriad ramifications of actually being saved. They understood enough about the gospel, about the Messiah, about His calling, but not the myriad ramifications of actually being saved. They had enough humility to be saved, but not enough to never be arrogant and self-serving ever again. And they, as we'll continue to see, were given saving faith, but they still lacked sanctifying faith afterwards. All of these identifiable patterns are clearly repeated in the Bible, in the accounts of the lives of the apostles. And not surprisingly, hence our study, they are patterns that we can all relate to personally. You understood enough to be saved, but you don't know everything. You were humble enough to be saved, hopefully, but you're not that humble. And you had enough faith, you were given saving faith, if you're saved, but you don't have faith in everything. So this pattern is something we can all relate to personally. Why? Because we all lack understanding, humility, and faith long after we're saved. And it's upon this last topic, faith, that we now rest and ponder. Go to Romans 12.1. <clears throat> Romans 12.1. So we're on the topic of faith. We're going to spend this evening on this topic. There's just so much to say on the topic. Um, <clears throat> we're going to sort of dance around the topic as a, as a doctrine, if you would, first, before we get back specifically to the apostles proper. Romans 12.1, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, now keep an eye on faith. This is our topic, faith. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual surface of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of what? Faith. God has allotted to each a measure of faith. I've taught on this multiple times now that uh, God gives grace to the humble, 
faith is a grace gift. And so God is the one who allots to each a measure of faith. We just decided, we just concluded that not everyone has all faith, uh, even after salvation. And so God allots to each a measure of faith, uh, more and more faith upon faith, as he sanctifies us. In context, Romans 12.3 speaks to the kind of faith that endows a person with abilities to fulfill their spiritual gift in the church. That's the specific context there. However, the same principle applies in every aspect of life. God allots faith to each of us. That is to say that without faith, it's also impossible to please God. Go to Hebrews 11.6. Think about this. Without this allotted measure of faith, the Bible says it's impossible to please God. Put that into context in your own life. Hebrews 11.6. I didn't say that. This is clearly stated scripture. Hebrews 11.6 says, And without faith it is impossible to please Him. So you don't have a prayer, in other words, if you don't have faith. And how do you get faith? God gives it to you. And who's he give things to? The humble. So if you ever have any hope whatsoever in pleasing God, you better have some humility so that he can give you said faith so that you can be pleasing to him. So without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. You don't seek him unless you're humble. That's the implication there. He rewards those who seek him. The, obviously, the implication also is that those that don't seek Him are seeking the self-life. So do you see the point the Spirit's making here, that without faith it is impossible to please Him? That's a big statement, so I hope you don't miss it. Without faith it is impossible to please Him. That's a giant statement, a huge statement that you also need to all rest on. Without faith it is impossible to please Him. And whether or not you believe it yet, it's fundamental to our entire Christian walk. You may not see it yet. Maybe you're sort of coming around the corner. Maybe you don't believe it yet. But that simple statement, without faith it's impossible to please Him, is fundamental to our entire Christian walk. Let me give you a triplet of verses to synthesize on this topic up here on the board. 2 Corinthians 5, 7, For we walk by faith, not by sight. John 20, 29, Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are those who did not see and yet believed. And then, of course, Hebrews 11, 1, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And so it's easy to talk about faith, in other words. That's what the Spirit's getting at this evening. It's easy to talk about faith. But there's an awful lot of talk in Christendom without a whole lot of walking. And what the Bible tells us is if you have true faith, you will walk by it. And that's the distinction between the talkers and the walkers. Or those that are doers of the word and those that merely hear it and delude themselves as James would say. That's the distinction. And it's very practical. It's really practical. It's not even hard to understand. It's actually very simple. I mean, what do you expect faith to do but produce good fruit in an individual? So I hope you see what the Spirit is saying to you here this evening. Uh, let me help even further by giving you the flip side. Go to Hebrews 10.38. Hebrews 10.38 Hebrews 10.38 says, But my righteous one shall live by faith. That should sound like Romans 1.17. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Huh. Well, that seems pretty dogmatic too, doesn't it? It's because it is. My righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. 
putting together both Hebrews 11.6 that says, Without faith it is impossible to please Him. And Hebrews 10.38, My soul is no pleasure in Him, the one that shrinks back. You quickly realize what Holy Scripture has to say about faith. Are you ready? Faith becomes the practical, let's call it the tie that binds. Faith becomes the practical tie that binds us to the Holy God of the universe. And it's 100% a grace gift from Him to His children alone. Let me say it again. Faith becomes the practical tie that binds us to the Holy God of the universe. And it is 100% a grace gift from Him to His children alone. I'm talking about very practically here. The practical tie that binds us. In other words, to abide in the sphere of His love. Guess what you have to have? Faith. Because if you don't have faith, what are you going to do? You're going to choose for something out there. You're always going to choose for the world. You're not going to have the faith to remain and say to yourself, be still. There's always going to be some carrot that you're chasing. There's always going to be some cause for your unhappiness or your malcontent. It's amazing how many people say, oh, I've had to put up with so much. Really? Really? And you're an American? the things you're complaining about and moaning and groaning about, take a trip to the other side of the globe and see what they're complaining about. And ask them why their stomachs are sticking out this far. And ask them why their children are dying. Then maybe, just maybe, you'd have something to say that actually meant something. Faith becomes the practical tie that binds us to the holy God of the universe. And the beauty of it is that it's 100% a grace gift from him to his children alone. Unbelievers do not have this faith. They have a faith in humanity, self, others, the world, etc. But they don't have this faith. Which is why all of the things that come with walking by faith are impossible to them. All the things that come with walking by faith are impossible to unbelievers. They're unattainable. That is why Jesus made the following blanket statement to his disciples up here on the board, Matthew 19, 26. And looking at them, Jesus said to them, With people this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. All things are possible. Do you realize your flesh is so strong it would have been impossible for you to give it up on your own? All he wanted was your consideration. Are you willing to give it up? Do you want to give it up? Do you want to follow my son? Okay, great. Here's repentance. Here's salvation. Good. Now you've got a starting point. Go. But you wouldn't have had that power to do that. But with God, all things are possible. Why? Because he's the one who grants faith. And faith is that practical tie that binds us to the God of the universe. There's an awful lot of unbelievers professing Christians that claim to have faith, but they don't. And therefore, they have no tie to God. Not a real one. And you see their fruit. They don't love. They're merciless. They're proud. They're arrogant. They're puffed up. They're striving. They're doing all kinds of things that are completely ungodly. Because that's what that fruit is the result of. With God, all things are possible, though. So it's magnificent what he does through faith. It's not kind of impossible for an unregenerate person to walk by faith. It's absolutely 100% impossible. It's not kind of. It's not, well, they're almost there. No, it's impossible for them to walk by faith. And the same principle applies even to believers who lack faith in certain areas. So let me put it this way, nice and simple for you. A person who lacks faith lacks ability. A person who lacks faith lacks ability. So you need to concentrate. Please do yourself a favor right now and memorize the point on the board. I don't mean forever, just for tonight, for maybe the rest of the week however long it takes to sink in. A person who lacks faith lacks ability. It's one of the simplest yet most profound things I could ever teach a believer. I just reflect for a moment. 
A person who lacks faith is incapable in every way of pleasing the holy God of the universe. What did we see in Hebrews? Without faith, it's impossible to please him. Did we not see that? So therefore, a person who lacks faith is incapable in every way of pleasing the holy God of the universe. That's like having the most, just think about this, that's like having the most loving, doting father on earth, and no matter what you do, you'll never be able to please him. Unless you first humble yourself to receive something precious from him. If you reject his gifts, his grace, then you lack the ability to love him back the way he wants you to love him. You also lack the ability to love others the way Jesus loves you. Oh, and by the way, didn't he say something about that? John 15, 12 up here in the board. This is my commandment, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. He even said to his disciples, if you remember, this is how people are going to know you're my disciples, because you love one another. He said, this is my commandment, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. But without faith, that doesn't happen. That includes what we read at the start of class, something that is entirely impossible, though often faked, for a person who lacks true faith up here on the board. Luke 6, 27 to 28, But I say to you who hear, Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. Love your enemies? What? You ever see kids, you know, remember, remember those loving little kids, you know, the little kids everybody wants to have? They're, when they're in their flesh and they have a little, like, you know, playground brawl, I mean, it's nasty. They're not loving their enemies. They're pitting against each other, rallying against each other, taking sides, cheering when the other one goes down. It's ugly. And then we grow up and we do the same things. But yet Jesus Christ said, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. But I do, you know, I do treat people well. I do love people. I do bless those who curse. Yeah, those are the people in your family. Those are people that you love personally. Those are old friends. But what did we read earlier? What about your enemies? Even sinners do that stuff. Where's the proof in the pudding? So right out of the gate, we see that faith enables a person to love their enemies. Faith enables that. You are, that your flesh is in, it's impossible for your flesh to do that very thing. But with God, all things are possible. So God gives you faith, and then you're able to love your enemies even. And it may take some time because it gives a measure of faith, and if you've been around long enough, you know you have increasing faith the longer you stay in the faith. So maybe you're like, yeah, that's way out front for me. <laughs> maybe you say, I do it all the time. I don't know. Maybe you're the person who prays for those who mistreat you. Maybe that's your starting point. It's usually should be the best place to start. So right out of the gate, we see that faith enables a person to love their enemies. And that, my friends, is a miracle. It really is a miracle. The fact that you are, I'm not talking about that, you know, that kind of love you gave you know, in front of your parents when you really wanted to, like, murder your younger sister or something like that. I'm not talking about that fake kind of thing. I'm talking about genuine, genuine love for enemies. That is a miracle because that's something your flesh would never do. It's literally the exact opposite of what the flesh wants to do because the flesh is murderous. So it's a miracle. But it hardly ends there. The Bible is chock full of scripture that points to the same love being evidenced in all aspects of life. For example, and don't ask me why I brought this up. There's, there's so many examples of this, but this is the one he brought out. 1 Timothy 5.8. Go there. 1 Timothy 5.8. 
These are the practical sides, if you would, of having faith. It's easy to talk, but you're supposed to walk. He wants you to walk. And not just as a legalist would walk. Not for the sake of walking. It's much more than that. 1 Timothy 5.8, But if anyone does not provide for his own, especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Oh man, that seems like harsh words. I didn't write it. But you see the strength of what faith does. You see the strength of the evidence of faith. Basically what Paul's saying is someone is not providing for the, those of his household. I'm not talking about temporary circumstances. I'm, we're talking about heart issues even. He has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's a, that's a tough thing to swallow. But that's faith. And I guess if you're not, then you're lacking faith somehow. Um, and you say, well, that, I, don't have, no, I, don't, I do have faith in that thing. I'm just, you know, goofed up over here or goofed up over there. But life is one contiguous thing, isn't it? I think that's a game a lot of people play. They say, don't look at the rest of my life. Don't look at the fact that I've made so many bad decisions that my life is a complete train wreck. Just listen to what I'm saying to you. Oh, no, I really do have faith. I really do want, I'm just not able. Well, if you had the, the faith that was required, your life maybe wouldn't be a complete train wreck in the first place. Maybe you'd be more grown up about living itself. Maybe you'd stop looking for loopholes. Well, I was this and I was that when I was young. And, you know, this happened to me or that happened to me. And I made this decision 20 years ago. What do you want me to tell you? There's certain decisions you make, bad ones, that can haunt you for the rest of your life. That's why the Bible, honestly, I've taught you this, the Bible is chock full of wise counsel. Don't do this thing, okay? Don't do this thing. Don't live this way. Don't do, Stay away from this kind of person. Stay away from that kind of person. To make sure that you don't become a proverb <laughs> on how... Not to live life. Why? Why do people make bad decisions? You know the answer. Why do you make bad decisions? Because you lack faith. Because if you had perfect faith like Jesus did, you wouldn't make bad decisions. If you had perfect faith, you would trust what God tells you, and you wouldn't fall for the carrot for the umpteenth time. You wouldn't waste your time, you know, being uh, carousing with the world. Again, the principle we are developing right now is very simple yet very profound. A person who lacks faith lacks ability. A person who lacks faith lacks ability. So there's a thing called walking in humility. The person who possesses true faith and walks by it is walking humbly before the Lord attributing any abilities as being received from him, not from self, lest they might boast wrongly. Again, walking in humility, the person who possesses true faith and walks by it is simultaneously, in other words, walking humbly before the Lord, attributing any abilities as being received from him, not from self, lest they might boast wrongly. This is something Paul taught more than once, and not surprisingly to the Corinthians, and you know how we can relate to those guys. Go to 2 Corinthians 10, 12. 2 Corinthians 10, 12. So Paul taught this often. This sort of intrinsic synergy or harmony, I guess, between faith and humility. 2 Corinthians 10, 12. For we are not bold to class or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves, but when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are without understanding. But we will not boast beyond our measure, but within the measure of the sphere which God apportioned to us as a measure to reach even as far as you. What Paul was saying there is simply that 
whatever he was doing, had done, or would do in Corinth was a function of the measure of faith he had been given to do so. Anything he was doing, he was doing by faith. That's what he was saying. I will not boast because it's by faith. And who gives us faith? God does, lest we boast. So that's what he was saying. He's like, anything I'm going to do or, or have done in this church is a function of the measure of faith that was given to me by God. Paul never wished to boast in his own abilities, but also wasn't afraid to assert his God-given abilities. Nor should you be. Not the least of which was his authority as an apostle. So while he wouldn't boast in himself, he was not shy, if you would, about his authority. But he knew his boundaries. And that's a very slippery slope for... Um, those in authority, especially in the spiritual life, like myself, obviously, this position, anyone in authority, in a position of authority uh, in a church or in the spiritual life, uh, husbands, uh, mothers, fathers over children, um, we're not to boast in ourselves. We're supposed to labor as unto the Lord. And even that, you ready? Even that, the ability to do that thing is, an, is, an in, is a function, if you would, of faith. It's not easy, I'll tell you what, it's not easy, um, as an example, this is not in my notes, but it's not easy always to stand before you as a, what, uh, a completely, obviously imperfect vessel, and hit you with the rod. Honestly, it's not easy, because I know what some of you are thinking. Oh, hold your horses there, Baldy. I know your life. You're, you're a train wreck in that area, and you might be right. But I have the authority to teach the Word of God. And so I do it as plainly and as boldly, without apology, as He wants me to. That's the measure that He's given me. And I try my best, I'm not saying I'm perfect, to stay within the boundaries. And I try my best, I'm not perfect, not to boast. That's what Paul did. And he's a good example of what faith looks like when it's accurate, when it's true. It knows its place, in other words. Verse 14, for we are not overextending ourselves. You see, he's saying, I'm not going to run with this thing. Now that I've got your attention, look at me. I'm not going to overextend myself. I'm not going to go outside of my boundaries as if it we did not reach to you, for we were the first to come even as far as you in the gospel of Christ, not boasting beyond our measure, that is, in other men's labors, but with the hope that is your faith, as your faith grows, we will be within our sphere enlarged even more by you, so as to preach the gospel even to the regions beyond you, and not to boast in what has been accomplished in the sphere of another, as a whole under tide going on there. I don't want to get into it. But he who boasts is to boast in the Lord. That's the point. That's what a faithful person does. For it is not he who commends himself that is approved, but he whom the Lord commends. So plainly stated, boasting in the Lord is a show of faith. Boasting in self is just the opposite. Boasting in the Lord is a show of faith. Boasting in self is just the opposite. Again, the principle we're developing a person who lacks faith, lacks ability. Walking in humility. The person who possesses true faith and walks by it is walking humbly before the Lord, attributing any abilities as being received from him, not from self, lest they might boast wrongly. We just read that, 2 Corinthians 10, 12 to 18. Let me give you another passage worth your consideration on this topic a person who lacks faith, lacks ability. Go to Ephesians 4.11. Ephesians 4.11. Remember, it's without faith, it's impossible to please Him. All God really wants to do is bring glory to Himself. That's what pleases Him. And the only way He can do it is by giving you faith. Because without faith, you are incapable of doing anything to His glory. That's what the word tells us. 
Ephesians 4.11, And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, that speaks, of course, to sanctification uh, experientially, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So ask yourselves, how did Christ walk then? To the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ, how did Christ walk? Two words, you ready? By faith. Who had greater faith than Jesus? Nobody. Nobody. Who was more humble than Jesus? No one. Who was more capable than Jesus? No one. Hmm. I wonder if those three, those three things go together. How did Jesus walk? By faith. Jesus Christ, of course, in all fairness, had perfect faith. And he is our prototype, remember. And by the way, he was perfectly humble, too. So these two concepts are eternally intertwined. Think about this. I know this is a lofty idea, but this is the way it is. That faith and humility are like eternally intertwined. It's almost, I know we do it theologically, doctrinally, spread them out, but true faith and true humility are like this. They're one and the same. They were the same ball of wax, if you would. You don't have one without the other, or the other without the other, you know what I'm saying? They're the same. They're always, they always come together. So these two concepts are eternally intertwined, and I hope you understand the magnitude of that statement. Up here on the board, <clears throat> on this topic of faith and humility, <clears throat> these two concepts are eternally intertwined in the person of Jesus Christ, our prototype. He was perfectly faithful, and he was perfectly humble. That's our prototype. And he was always like that. You have to think that way. He came to earth like that. That's who he was. So these two concepts are eternally intertwined in the person of Jesus Christ, our prototype. It is implied that a person who walks by faith is walking humbly. That each measure of faith exists with a measure of humility. That's what the Spirit's trying to say. You can't give yourself faith. You can't manufacture faith. The only thing you have to your account really is humility. Stay humble, press on. Seek him out. You'll find. Knock, he'll open the door. Like I taught on Sunday, pray. If you don't know what's going on in your life, if you're all cockeyed... <laughs> Pray and keep on praying. Honestly, when there's nowhere else to go, then get down on your knees and pray. Say, God, I have no idea what is going on in my life. I am literally in a tailspin. I'm miserable. I don't know why. I'm awful to people. I don't know why. I'm impatient. I'm, impar uh, I'm partial. Uh, I'm all kinds of things that I don't want to be even. What's the problem? And you know he's probably going to come back to you and he's going to probably point out areas where you are lacking faith, which, are, which is preceded by humility. Because that plague tends to spill over in our lives. That malcontent, that lack of peace, it's, it's like a cancer, it's a disease. And so sometimes he's going to broaden your horizons when you pray. But at the end of the day, these two concepts, faith and humility, are eternally intertwined in the person of Jesus Christ. He is our prototype. So it is implied that a person who walks by faith is walking humbly, that each measure of faith exists with a measure of humility. Now, when these things exist in the life of a believer, they witness to God's work in them as fruit. They're witnesses of God's work in them, and they bear fruit. If Let me put it this way. If faith exists in the absence of humility, then it is worldly faith. If humility exists in the absence of faith, then it is false humility. If both exist, then a believer bears good fruit. 
which in many cases means blessings. You ready? Here's the, here's the amazing thing about all these commandments. When you follow his commandments, you receive blessings. When these two things come together in your soul, it means blessings like peace and love and contentment. The issue with life after salvation is that while we have access to such blessings, we often fail to exercise our privileges. That's the problem. Why? Because we're arrogant. And because we're arrogant, we lack faith. And then when it's time for faith to stand up for us, if you would, in our lives, it's not there. Or it crumbles or it shatters like glass. Because as soon as it's tested, you find out it was no good. So I'll give you an analogy. Because <clears throat> it's sad, because after salvation, we have access to such blessings. That's what the Bible says. But we often fail to exercise our privileges. So here's an analogy. You receive a gift certificate to your favorite restaurant up on Capitol Hill. Or is it called Federal Hill in Providence? Is it Federal Hill? Yeah, see, I'm not Italian, so... If I was going to go mine, I'd go down to Fall River. Portuguese, just saying. That wasn't funny at all. <laughs> oh, thank you. Golf clap. You receive, you receive a gift certificate to your favorite restaurant up on Federal Hill in Providence. You've got the address as printed on the certificate. You're all dressed up and ready to go. And all you need to do is open up your GPS app on your cell phone and plug in the address. But every time you go to do that, some really enticing advertisement pops up and you click on it. And this happens over and over again until you realize you're now running late. You've got the most succulent meal awaiting you and you've pushed it off for some stupid temptations. You decide in your own head what those might be. This is analogous to life as a believer. The Bible says that you've already been granted access to things beyond your wildest dreams. And yet it takes most of us years to arrive and enjoy the meal he sets before us. The issue? Faith. The issue is faith. Why do you click on the temptation? Because you lack faith. If your faith was strong enough, you'd say, Get out of here. You're a complete distraction. At some point in your life, you start laughing at it. If you have strong enough faith, you don't, these things no longer distract you and take you away. But it's an issue of faith. If we had perfect, unflinching faith, though we'd be temptable, we call that in Latin, posse non peccari, able not to sin, like Jesus was, we'd never veer off course. If we had perfect, unflinching faith, we'd never veer off course. We'd be able not to sin. As we can all attest, since we do obviously lack faith, as the apostles did, we do veer off course a lot. And that's why when you grow up, you veer off less and less. Because he allots to you a measure of faith. As you, he teaches you humility, you get more faith, you get more faith, you get more humility, and next thing you know, the temptations don't have the same effect as they used to. When you're young, the temptations overcome you. When you're old, the temptations don't have the same effect. So this, all of this is why Paul spent time explaining that while we have faith, we must be sanctified. And the glorious thing about saving faith is that it is never lost. Rather, it is built upon throughout our lifetimes. Something we call out in theology as experiential or progressive sanctification. So we might say that faith builds upon faith. And even when we prove ourselves faithless at times, God finds a way to mercifully encourage us back into his plan by means of his own faith. That's right. God is faithful. God's a person after all. That's what the Bible says. And he's faithful. We're faithless. But he's faithful. And even when we veer off, he's so faithful that he gets us back. 
And Jesus said, and lost not one. Go to 2 Timothy 2.10. 2 Timothy 2.10. Second Timothy 2.10. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, in our curriculum, obviously, these are the same things that the apostles suffered. Second Timothy 2.10. For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. It is a trustworthy statement, for if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we, uh, let's see, sorry. If we are faithless, if we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains what? Faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So we're faithless at times. He is faithful. Again, up here on the board. The beauty of God's plan for we believers is that while we never lose saving faith, he continues to add to our faith. It implies we are lacking. He wouldn't have anything to add. If we didn't lack it, the apostles were no different. And that's the beauty of God's plan for we believers, that while we never lose saving faith, he continues to add to our faith. The apostles were no different. Hence, our current study up here on the board, we've gotten back to it. I want to read one more passage before I introduce you to our new pre-class song. We read a portion of Matthew 16 on Sunday together. Let's read the whole chapter this time. Go to Matthew 16, 1. There's just so much going on, especially these first three bullets. Look for understanding, look for humility, and look for faith in how they were lacking in this one chapter. Humil understanding, humility, and faith. Look at all the ways that we can relate to the way the apostles lacked. Matthew 16, 1. <clears throat> the Pharisees and Sadducees came up in testing Jesus. They asked him to show them a sign from heaven. But he replied to them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs of the times? An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. And a sign will not be given, except the sign of Jonah. And he left them and went away. And the disciples came to the other side of the sea, but they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, Watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They began to discuss this among themselves, saying, He said that because we did not bring any bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, You men of what? Little faith. These people were saved. But they didn't have all the faith yet. You men of little faith, why do you discuss among yourselves that you have no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000? And how many baskets full you picked up? I mean, isn't that just an indictment on all of us? Don't you remember the miracle of your salvation? How dare we lose sight? How dare we question his faithfulness to us after salvation? So we think that he can do this incredible supernatural thing, literally regenerate us so that we're born again, put a brand new creature, which is a supernatural feat, unbelievable the things he does at salvation, but yet he can't deliver us from our own little woes, our little problem. And we lose faith and go out to the world. It's unbelievable. What is he saying here? He's like, I mean, come on, man. Don't you even remember the, the little things? I mean, don't you remember what just happened? The five loaves and the 5,000? Don't you remember that stuff? So what he's saying is, you should have faith already, but you don't. Why? Because you're too preoccupied with other things. You're, you know, you're not there yet. You're still young in the faith, let's say. You just have a little faith. And this we can relate to. He says, do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets full you picked up? Or the seven loaves of the, of the 4,000 and how many large baskets full you picked up? How is it that you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread, but beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees? Then they understood. You see, he had to teach them. That's what we're learning. Jesus called them out, trained them up, and then sent them. 
We're still on that second bullet. Training them up. Do you not understand? Well, let me tell you. Now they understood. Verse 12. Then they understood that he did not say to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And see, he understood that, didn't he? But yet he didn't understand the bread thing. <laughs> so there you go. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Obviously, he had saving faith. Who gives faith? God does. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. So here's Peter again. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. For you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father and his angel, with angels, and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Amazing chapter. I would recommend you read that again, but I hope you saw how much of what's on the board, at least the first three bullets, understanding, humility, and faith, were actually in that chapter. Why? It's that synergy. Do you understand? He's trying to bring all these things together. Sanctification means you will get more sanctification. You will get more understanding. You will get more humility. You will get more faith. You will get more committed, and you will have more power. These are what, this is what comes with sanctification. You lack it, he sanctifies it, then you have it. Amen? We're out of time. I've got to introduce the new pre-class song, David, Get Ready. Um, again, this was the closest contest ever. Every submission, I thank all of you um, for submitting. Every submission was really good. There were a couple of artists that I didn't use because we've just been using them. And I, I, we needed a different artist, so if that's you, then, you know, there's a couple in particular that have wonderful songs, but I'm, you know, kind of want to spread it out a little bit as well. Uh, plus, this song that, uh, that uh, was chosen called The Gospel by Ryan Stevenson uh, is appropriate. So, David, I'll shut off the light. You go ahead, shut off my mic.
we'll turn over every stone. So can we get Hoping back to find salvation? Back to the world that's left us cold. Can we get back to the altar? Back to the arms of our first loves. There's only one way to the Father. salvation in a world that's left us cold can we get back to the altar back to the arms of our first love there's only one way to the father and he's calling out to us to the captive it looks like freedom to the orphan it feels like home to the skeptic it might sound crazy to believe in a god who loves It's the good news for us all. It's greater than religion. It's the power of the cross. So can we get back to the altar? Back to the arms of our first love. There's only one way to the Father. And he's calling out to us. To the captive, it looks like freedom. To the orphan, it feels like home.
bow our heads and close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this evening. Thank you for gathering us together. And thank you for the gospel, the truth about your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the privilege of taking said truth out to a world that is in desperate need of it, Father. Thank you for empowering us in doing that very thing. We just ask for traveling mercies and blessings as we take the things that we've learned out to this lost and dying world, Father. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.